Welcome to the Veterinary Business Matters Podcast brought to you by Oculus Insights. Here we will discuss topics related to veterinary business management. From small to large animal, this podcast strives to give you the insight and tools to help you improve your veterinary business. Oculus Insights, supporting businesses where great people want to be. Hi, it's Mike Powell and Katie Arline, and we're back with Hire the Smile, the podcast on human resources for veterinary practices by Oculus Insights. Hey, Katie, how are you doing? Hello, doing well, thanks. How about you? I'm doing very well. Uh, you're heading on vacation soon, so good for you. Mm-hmm. And it rained here today, which is exciting. That's really exciting. I could use a vacation. My wife and I were getting groceries this morning. We're both like, you know what? It's time for a vacation. Yeah. Been a been a long few months, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, when you start to think of just the cumulative nature of COVID on everything else that we've had to do, boy. I, I was recording a, a session or a, last week with some LBTs, RBTs, of some small animal practices, any animal practices, and they're just talking about how even though they're seeing fewer patients and some of them are still on fewer hours, everybody is exhausted. So I think the whole vet profession is exhausted, and our clients are exhausted. So it's just an it's an exhausting time. Definitely. So, as usual, you and I have sort of been scurrying around looking for interesting articles or links that have shown up about human resources and their applications to veterinary medicine. And I, I one came up, I was actually scrambling. It's like, man, I'm looking at the news. Not many people are talking about human resources. I just couldn't find anything. And then, mm-hmm. lo and behold, yesterday morning, I get an email once a week from Gallup, and they had a new article talking about micromanagers. And they have the ultimate guide to micromanagers, signs, causes, solutions. And we will have links to these articles in the uh, podcast notes. So, Let's talk about, I mean, we have seen a lot of practices. I would actually look at myself in the mirror back when we first started our own practice. I think micromanagement, I think it's a problem in every industry, every profession. I wonder if we see more of it in uh, veterinary medicine because uh, I think by nature, veterinarians were very particular. The consequences of mistakes are large, big consequences. We're busy. And I just think, does it predispose veterinarians to be micromanagers? What do you think? Yeah, I was thinking about this morning too, and I think it's that margin for error and also the way that veterinarians are schooled to be, you know, get perfect scores on exams and to be really focused on on data. And it can be hard for that kind of personality to kind of take a step back and and look at the bigger picture sometimes. Like they're they're looking at the bigger picture in the sense that they're looking at an entire case, but that can be very narrowing. I'm also wondering, I'm thinking of situations where you'll see vets in, and just like in terms of in surgery, so you're working with people, but there's usually the main surgeon. Yeah. And it's very directive, like do this, do that, give me this, give me that, you know, or with interns or residents. And so we don't necessarily have a collaborative training as veterinarians. Right. And most of us that we go into vet medicine, you know, we're just been sequestered away trying to get good grades so we can get into that school. So it's not necessarily a team approach, which I wonder if that might be some uh, cause of it. And I mean, I mean, this is purely speculation. Maybe somebody can do research and find out the veterinarians that are like the least micromanagement <laughs> type managers out there. But it just seems like it. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting because they talk about some leaders, you know, we try, you know, try to avoid being a micromanager at all costs, but that's almost it comes they two hands off and everybody sort of sinks and swims. And they talk about 
Other managers seem to take a pride in being a micromanager. They want to be engaged, involved, deep in the weeds. They see this as a market uh, true leader. But what I like about this article is they had one question, which is sort of like the one question test to identify a micromanager. And I read this, I was like, that's pretty clever. These people are smart there. And that is, is the team customer obsessed or boss obsessed? And I read that and I started thinking back to some of the places where I had been at and I'm like, oh my, they are totally boss obsessed. Definitely. Yeah. Everything they do is around making sure that they're doing what's right for the boss. So. Yeah. The boss's sort of outcomes and what the boss wants and the boss might not necessarily have a good feel of what's happening day to day. So it's, it's a dichotomy because you have the boss saying, be good at customer service, but please me as well. Or you yeah, know, they sort of yeah. have their side agenda and it can be exhausting as a, a mid-level manager to try and balance that for sure. Yeah, and I just think I've seen employees and that, you know, when they start to describe it, nobody feels they're doing their best work. Everybody feels constantly evaluated. Yeah. Nobody wants to take responsibility. And you know, and so we see that a lot. And and then you see just people getting burnt out, fried, they don't want to try anything new because all they're focusing on is, is making sure the boss is happy. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not the company is good. It's just my boss. Yeah, my boss is happy and I haven't heard from them in, you know, 24 hours about something we're doing wrong. And that's a win. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's interesting. So one of the most common complaints they say about micromanagers is that they're too involved. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's true. But according to the analysis by Gal, they say a majority of employees experience the opposite problem that they get absolutely, even though the the micromanaging boss is very involved, what they're not getting from them is any kind of feedback or communication from their manager. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like, I'm here all the time, but we're not really talking. And you're sort of just dancing or trying to anticipate what I want. Yes. Absolutely. And, and sort of that, you know, do this and that, and please do this and that. And then you don't have a lot of guidance or a lot of really understanding of what the, the boss's expectations are, the parameters around a project. So you spend all this time doing it and you send it to the boss and they say, oh, well, this is all wrong. It's like, well, we yeah. could have talked about this at the beginning. <laughs> they don't give you any context or why you're doing that or what the outcome is expected to be or what have you. Yeah. So their conclusion is that it wasn't really, uh, the problem isn't an over-involvement. I mean, we think that's it, but that's more of a symptom. And that really it was a lack of an ongoing partnership. Mm-hmm. And that is, it is not a top-down, you know, do things my way as a communication. So I like they had a bit of a description. We've talked a lot about coaching before, but, you know, they say a micromanager creates a transactional relationship in which the manager fixates on minor mistakes and focuses on a person's weaknesses and work style. Great coaching, on the other hand, is an ongoing relationship of support and trust that emerges out of a rhythm of collaborative conversations leading to teamwork and shared accountability. Really diametrically opposed. Absolutely, yeah. It resonated with me because I I recognize it in myself when I first started running a business, but it's something that I really do see in, in other businesses that we've had worked at where it's just you know it's it's me 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 and there's no we in there at all absolutely yeah and i thought they kind of had a good little guideline here sort of the language between you know recognizing if it's micromanagement or coaching you know they say a coach or a micromanager tells whereas a coach asks 
micromanager focuses on the how, whereas the coach explains the why. The micromanager wants you to do your own work. The coach wants you to own the work. Uh, the micromanager gives feedback too late, whereas the coach is involved sort of along the way and gives ongoing feedback. Yeah. So I think that's a really clear division between the two roles. Yeah, and I think as an employee, I mean, they talk about why being micromanagement suck. I mean, we can really talk a lot about it, but really what I like, what they put there, and it's so true, the focus is on failure, mistakes, and weaknesses mm-hmm. rather than spotting potential and seeking continuous improvement. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, and I know I've seen this over the years as well, is a lot of the time we tend to focus on you know, what somebody isn't doing well within their role and we ignore the rest of it. We really try and fit them into this mold of what they're not good at. Uh, and then once we kind of get a clue and we say, okay, well, let's, uh, let's relent on that side of things and really encourage what they are good at, then they flourish. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have to kind of get over that well, I can do it, so why can't you? Or this other person can do it, so why can't you? I mean, not everybody's the same, and not everybody's going to be able to be developed to the standard that you're expecting. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I know. Or the other uh, comment I hear a lot from micromanagers is like, if I want to get it done right, I've got to do it. Because I'm going to have to go back anyhow and fix it, so I might as well just do it. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you're never going to teach the other person, or you're never giving them support to do it well, so you're sort of self-perpetuating the need for you to be a micromanager. Definitely. And I think that that this can be one of those places where the owner, let's say, or the next level up is leaning on that middle manager and saying, well, why are these mistakes being made? And Mm -hmm. the manager's working on things with their staff, but they're the one that get get all the flack and the, the upper level manager doesn't really understand what's happening day to day. So you know, it's just so well, why didn't this happen? Why did I have to ask about this again? It's like, well, you're not really understanding the context. That's very frustrating. I've been in that position. That's very frustrating. Again, going back to that, you know, errors are potentially catastrophic in vet medicine or any kind of medicine. And so we, we don't like to let people fail or make mistakes. And, and I think when people do make mistakes, we really come down hard on them as opposed to say, hey, we screwed up. We all screw up at some point. Let's learn from it and, and move on. And I guess this is when, you know, they sort of talk about the root causes of micromanagement. This was good for me because I kind of thought, based on some previous reading, and who knows which one's right, but I think it's worthy of the discussion of, you know, micromanagers is usually their own insecurities. Right. I bought that narrative, and I think there's probably still a lot of truth to it, but really what they talk about is that micromanaging occurs when there's no relationship of trust and support between a manager and employee. Uh, managers don't trust employees because they don't know them and vice versa. And so what managers must do is they got to show they care and they have to prove to the team that they have the team's back. And I know the next article we're going to talk about is a lot about trust. Mm-hmm. And it's just amazing how, you know, I sort of looked at it in this aspect of it is very transactional and it's not focused on developing a relationship. And I don't know if it's because we're not hiring the right people or, we're, we're just too self-involved in what we're doing. And so it's hard for us to reach out. Are we as veterinarians? Because primarily most of us are introverts and we have a harder time interacting with people generally. They're all generally things. So it maybe it's harder for us as veterinarians to develop those relationships because we'd rather just be by ourselves. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea. But I mean, these are the questions that really, really, you know, come to mind there. 
Yeah. And, you know, when you think of micromanagement until you kind of look at look deeper into it, you think, oh, it's just somebody who's a control freak. But I think this these this article is really interesting and kind of bringing up those other questions for me about the why and, you know, what's behind what's the motivation behind the micromanagement? Yeah, for sure. So, of course, there, there comes to how do we change being a micromanager? And I think there's some great tips for people. Uh, and, and this will really segue well into your article. So, you know, from bottom to top, so number five on the list of five is be mindful of what you recognize and reward. What do you celebrate? Why do we celebrate it? Acknowledging great work that other people do and, and know that other people have contributed. Talk about development, prioritize development. How do we get better? Organizations only improve when their people improve. And, you know, we've been having some discussions. I had some discussions within my practice yesterday about our accounts receivable and inventory. So we did a big inventory count at the end of June. And I really had to emphasize that this is going to not be a people process. Often it's, you know, it's, it's more of a process. So let's not blame the people, but let's look at what we're trying to improve. And it's really, I think, one of the things I think we do well at our company is like, how do we do it better? How do we do it better? Right. How do we work on that? And, and how do we work on that as a team and not, Take this as, oh, your practice did worse than the other practice. It's like, okay, what are we learning from each other? How do we get better? Exactly. Yeah. Sort of thinking about possibilities instead of excuses. Yeah. Uh, Number three, a shift from old school performance management to the more modernized ongoing conversations. And I know we have been talking about this a lot uh, lately. And that's one of the things that we, when we we work with practices and we present on human resources, we talk about the ongoing conversations do you want to sort of summarize our approach to that or what we think is the right way of doing that? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, if you think of old school performance management, to me, that's the once a year, bring a giant box of Kleenex, sit down and hear about all the things you've done wrong type review. Uh, and you can see, I mean, if I describe it that way, that's really what it is. When you just hear about your performance once a year, uh, you come in, you have no idea, you don't really have a say in it necessarily. Like you might have some questions that you have to, um, to respond to, but you don't get to assess your own performance. So that's sort of the old school way. Whereas the type of performance management that we are in favor of and that we um, try and disseminate among the practices that we work with is a more collaborative, ongoing type performance management system. So yes, there is still a yearly review, but it's very collaborative. You fill out a self-review, we get all sorts of peer feedback, it all sort of gets rolled up into a conversation. But really more important than that is all of the conversations that we uh, encourage our, our clients to have throughout the year with their staff, You know, sitting down and talking about how are things going, uh, if we've set goals, how are we doing on those goals, you know, and how can I as a manager help you? So it's, it's less like sitting down and hearing about what you're doing wrong, uh, every month, you know, if, if somebody's deficient in what they're doing in their job, we should be addressing that right away as it happens. Mm-hmm. These conversations are more for, you know, well, we talked about last month about how, how, you know, when you're stressed, you can be very short with people and how, how to go from last month to this month and sort of talking. So it's, there aren't any surprises when you get to the year end, you know, this, the year end review should be a celebration of how things went and it should be um, you know, if, it, if it's percentage based or numbers based, it should be a celebration and it should be, wow, look how much I improved since last year overall. But absolutely nothing should ever be a surprise. And people shouldn't be scared and it should be very collaborative. 
Yeah, 100% agree. The, the other one uh, is focus on strengths. And I think sort of as we were just talking about performance review, we really just like to focus on weaknesses and get better, get better. This is where you're bad, get better, mm-hmm. uh, which is totally defeating. And I know one of the things we have, we have learned the last couple of years, and this has been really good research, and that is, you know, it's hard to fix people's quote unquote weaknesses. Yeah. Uh, we are who we are. And so this is like that micromanager of like, okay, this is the role you should be. We're going to try to put you uh, that square peg into that round hole. And instead of focusing on the weaknesses, focus on the strengths of the people. What do they do well? What do they enjoy doing? What energizes them as opposed to what just totally demoralizes and just, you know, sucks any joy out of them. And so I think, you know, they quote here, um, uh, Sir Richard Branson's famous tips for delegating uh, number one is know your own strengths and weaknesses. And number two, know your team's strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. And so make sure you have that right team that supports you. But I think it starts with really, really, really precise self-reflection of yourself as that leader or manager. Definitely. Because it's going to be accentuated as you work. So you, you have to know what works best with you and make sure you hire those right kinds of people. Yeah. And I think it's, um, as you were sort of talking there, I think you need to remember to make a distinction too. And for staff, if you say, oh, we're only going to focus on your strengths and your staff are like, oh, perfect. I don't have to do the things I don't want to do. There's a difference between maybe you have somebody who works in, I don't know, um, something behind the scenes and, and they're expected to talk to clients. Maybe they're your reminders person and they prefer to text or email and they won't pick up the phone and they're like, well, I just, that's not a strength of mine talking to people. And it's like, well, that's not really a reason. I mean, we can work on that, but that's, you're not going to not have to do it. So there's, there's a bit of, you have to be careful that staff don't sort of take advantage of that and say, well, I just don't want to do that. So I'm going to say that's not my strength. Right. Yeah. And the number one way uh, they say to address uh, micromanagement is to create a culture of trust and shared accountability. So mm-hmm. I think that's a perfect segue into the article that you found. So why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, for sure. So the article I found was out of, I think it was HBR. Yeah, it was. Harvard Business Review. Yep. Uh, and it is actually from late 2019, from December 2019, but I thought it was still really relevant and it dovetailed nicely with uh, the micromanagement part that you were talking about. So the name of the article is, Do You Really Trust Your Team and Do They Trust You? And the author is Amy Jen Sue. So this was really interesting because, you know, when you you sent me the article you wanted to talk about regarding micromanagement, I was thinking, okay, well, to me micromanagement when it boils down to it um, can often be a sign of a lack of trust. Um, But it's hard to sometimes pinpoint. I mean, you know, there's trust, uh, various facets of trust and and various ways you can mistrust. So I thought this article is really interesting because they talk about breaking down lack of trust into different categories. So they've got a few categories here, um, two main categories. So there's trust and performance. So, you know, do you trust that your people um, are going to follow through? Are they going to use good judgment? Uh, are they going to look good if we're, you know, at a conference or something? Can I trust them to, to look uh, and speak and act the way that we expect them to as an organization? So um, these are, and they sort of say these are the hard skills or the harder aspects of trust. So they're the performance-paced factors. Um, so the first aspect of 
that performance, trust and performance is trusting that people are going to actually follow through. So your team members are going to do to the jobs they're supposed to do. I mean, we've all been on a team where you have that one person who you can't trust to get the job done. And you, as a result, end up either A, doing all the work, uh, which isn't healthy either, or B, you just, the team isn't really fun to work on because you're just trying to, to hold this person up and get them to do what they're supposed to be doing. Some things that they suggest that really, this is a really excellent article, actually, because they do give you ideas on how to address these issues. So the first one is having one-on-one meetings. So like we were just talking about um, assessing somebody's workload and and sort of how they're doing. So you might look at somebody and say, they're really not getting anything done. And unless you talk to them to understand why there's, you can't really go forward. I mean, maybe there's a, maybe you're the reason, maybe you didn't give them some feedback or you didn't, they're waiting on you. So you really need to be able to have those conversations and assess really objectively what they're working, what their workload is and what their outputs are like. And then, of course, giving them fair feedback. So and also making sure that the expectations are clear. You know, there's nothing worse than like we talked about in the micromanagement article. You complete something under a certain assumption and then somebody else comes in and says, well, that's not how I would do it. I think it's there's a comedian. I think it's Kevin Hart who has a joke where he says when he was parenting his kids, he learned, you know, he can't just tell them to go to sleep because his son, like he said, go to sleep one time. And his son just basically like was standing straight up and like did an exaggerated, closed his eyes and pretended he was asleep. It's like, well, that's not what I meant. You know, so understanding that people can't read your mind and they don't know what, uh, what you want them to do. That's something you really need to keep in mind. And also not being afraid to talk to the people who are holding the team back in person. So addressing that elephant in the room and talking to them and making sure that they understand how they're affecting the rest of the team. Often if people have been acting a certain way their whole lives, they aren't able to have that sort of step back and understand how they affect others. So being able to have that conversation is really important. Oh, yes. The difficult conversation. Everybody loves to have that. Best friend. Yes. Oh, yes. We love that. But it's needed. If you have that culture of, of transparency and accountability, you know, it just becomes what you do. Yes. People have it and uh, it, it takes time. But if, if nobody is, you know, screamed at, yelled at, but more of, hey, do you realize the effect that you're having on other people? You know, usually it's a pretty good outcome. Yeah, that accountability. Absolutely. Uh, So the second trust uh, and performance factor they talk about uh, that could be deficient is that you might not trust that your team is using good judgment. And I think this is really a hallmark of the micromanagement is that you don't trust that your team is going to do things the way that they should be done. Uh, and you tend to want to be involved in every decision. You're over involved in things. So going back to what we were talking about in the last article regarding coaching, fixes for this could be, you know, sharing your rationale for your decisions. So, you know, we've all heard like, well, management doesn't understand what's going on here and they just make these decisions and they don't seem to make sense. A good idea would be to share why you're making the decisions you are, like what factors are you looking at? Um, You know, what stakeholders are you considering when you're making decisions so that they understand when it comes time for them to make a decision, they they would be expected to sort of, or they should think of these different factors, mm-hmm. you know, and this is, this is an interesting one. So allowing people to fail. Uh, and this is a really difficult one in veterinary medicine, for sure, particularly on the, the medicine side with the veterinarians, you know, so you have to sort of 
pick your situations where you're going to be less involved. But failure, as much as we, we all hate failing, and I hate failing as much as the next person, there's always something to be learned from failure, particularly, you know, building your resilience is something that comes out of failure as well. So, you know, allowing people to fail and then uh, deconstructing or having a debrief about what happened at the end and not sort of laying on them and reminding them that they failed because absolutely they remember they failed. So there's no point in harping on that, but let's learn how to have this not happen again or let's improve processes so it's better for everybody. I think this is a huge one. And uh, is this something that you have, you know, you talked about it at the key panel. Is this something that you sort of actively do there as well? Yeah, you know, it's funny because what I have learned, you know, from one incident is when I, when I told a newer vet that uh, they made a mistake and I was like, it's okay. And they're like, well, what, what do you mean? They're like, we're going to learn from this. And if you made a mistake, others may have made it in the context of this particular thing. We'll get better from it. And I said, like, you know what? We're going to fail. I failed. We're always going to fail. We're going to learn from it. Let's try to not repeat our mistakes. Mm-hmm. But let's look at this as a learning opportunity and get better. And you can just see the person physically relax. And I think it was the first time that they had somebody had ever told them that failure was an option. Um, and again, I think again with vets, just we've got to get in school, we've got to get in school. When we fail, we get marks taken off. You know, it's going to influence our acceptance. No, when you say we're we're, we're going to fail and, and accept it, embrace it, learn from it. Don't beat yourself up about it. And uh, let's talk about it. Definitely. That's something I bring up to every new person, whether they're a vet or a receptionist or someone that's helping in the barn or like, we're going to fail. For sure. Let's learn from it. Having that, that load off and people understanding that failure is, is just, it's natural and it's going to happen. Just takes so much pressure off and it, it, I think it allows them to do better work because they're not just worried about being perfect all the time because, you know, a micromanager plus a perfectionist, like what a combination that is. That's a painful combination. So, yeah. Absolutely. And then the third sort of fix that they talk about for um, being worried about your team using good judgment is, you know, when people do make a, a poor judgment call, having, again, having that sit down, asking questions, understanding the rationale for why they made the decision they did or why they acted the way they acted so that you can both understand. And I think uh, something that goes a long way when you're having this type of conversation is saying, okay, well, how did we as a company let you down? Is there an element of shared accountability here so that the person really understands that it's not, you're not really coming down on them. It's uh, let's, let's really honestly figure out how we can make this better for the next time. I think that's really uh, something to remember as well. As you're talking and I'm listening to you, this all really does come back to, you know, it's just like this openness and this yeah. inquiry and curiosity and lack of judgment and just, the theme is trust. I'm like sort of being kind of like, duh, obvious, Mike. We have such rules for how we think we're supposed to behave in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And I think this is really deconstructing that and being more open and embracing ambiguity and not being so rigid. Yeah. And knowing that we as people are all different. And so when you get a collection of people together, the gray areas increase. Yeah. And that can be really difficult. Um, you know, partic- you know, I'm thinking of somebody like a receptionist who has sets of rules for how the practice does things. And then each vet might have a different way that they like to have things done as well. And then, you know, so we say, okay, well, vet X likes it like this, but vet, vet Y likes things to be scheduled like this. And they take an hour, whereas the other one takes 45 minutes. 
And then we ask the receptionist to be to be able to work in that gray area. That's really difficult. So, you know, having some empathy for them and understanding that, you know, okay, well, maybe they didn't make the best decision in the client's interest this time. But, you know, we have to be sensitive to the vet might have been angry at them that morning because they booked something the wrong way or whatever the case may be. So I think that that's something to, to keep in mind as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the third uh, trust uh, in performance based uh, factor they talk about is trusting team members to represent me or the organization in the way that we want to be represented. So I can't see how it'd be, you know, as the practice owner, micromanaging a vet at an appointment might be difficult, but I think that doesn't mean that um, we can't make sure that people are set up for success and have guidelines on sort of the the way we do things around here. So some of this goes back to culture now that I say that, mm-hmm. you know, making sure people understand, well, this is how we speak to clients. This is how we, how we do things. This is how we display confidence. This is how we engage with other people. So it's your training program. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things we don't do enough of in vet practices. We don't really train new people. Uh, we just sort of throw them in the deep end and go swim. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, if you have people, I'm thinking of like going to a conference and, you know, Oculus going to conferences. And I remember the first time I was at the AEP conference, it was very new to Oculus. And I was like, I don't know what the heck I'm doing here. But watching you and watching our other colleagues interact with people pretty soon, you kind of figure out like, okay, well, this is how it works. So they talk about coaching and mentoring those with potential. Uh, you know, not everybody's going to be great in client facing roles or at a conference or whatever the case may be, uh, but we can certainly help those that have the potential to get there. Sure. Again, going back to that strengths and weaknesses talk, you know, I can think of people uh, at various places that I've worked that um, would never be comfortable there. So why would you put them in that position? Whereas there are others who just need a little polishing. Uh, okay, so that was sort of the trust and performance side of things. And I think the more interesting dimension of of trust is the trust in people's principles, which really boils down to integrity. And this set off a lot of thinking and pondering for me. So the dimensions of, uh, of trust and principles they talk about, the first one is discretion. So, you know, do you uh, trust your staff to um, keep confidential information confidential? And I mean, this is like the basic thing after, uh, you know, in, in the medical world of discretion and confidentiality. But that doesn't mean that you just assume that people know that they're not supposed to talk about certain things. So, you know, making sure that people are educated, uh, make sure that you set ground rules around what can be talked about. And then if people have questions, make sure that they know they can come to you. Um, so I think discretion, we might be better at it in the veterinary world. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, just because of confidentiality, um, yeah, I think that's just sort of inherent sort of what we drilled do. Drilled into us, but that doesn't mean that it's something you don't discuss <laughs> in training. That's for sure. Yeah. So this is where it gets interesting for me. So another one is um, in, in on the principal side is trusting that people will protect the psychological safety of others, and I think. Uh, you know, when you have somebody on your team who isn't sensitive to other people and their thoughts and feelings, then it creates such a, a toxic team environment. And you have people who might have had something really excellent to contribute, who might retreat. So, you know, they're not, they might not be as engaged as they were before, they might not be listening, they're not asking questions, they're not speaking up. 
So it really stunts the the team's entire potential, the people in the team itself. So this is a really, um, really one that, that needs to be built and needs to have close attention paid to it. So some of the fixes they talk about for this uh, dimension are modeling healthy conflict. So you as a leader, as a manager, or whoever, as a veterinarian, making sure that when you have conflict with others, or when you don't agree with somebody else, you're not just sort of shutting them down and saying, well, I know I'm right and you're wrong. It's like, no, we can have a conversation about this. We can listen to other points of view. We could even have our point of view swayed because we've heard a persuasive argument on the other side. So I think that that's, that's really, really important. You know, you have a lot of people who, uh, and a lot of leaders, and we've definitely seen it, where a practice owner or a manager wants to win the conversation at all costs. So it's not about, you know, being collaborative and coming up with a solution that's, that's good for both parties. It's just like, who's going to win this conversation? And that is never a constructive thing. And that, that yeah. leads to major distrust. And that's where it ends up. Well, we're just going to agree to disagree. Yeah. It's like, well, (laughs) no, (laughs) it's like somebody who says, I just say things the way they are. It's like, well, no, actually you're a bit of an ass. (laughs) You just don't care about people's feelings. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And then the other one here, absolutely sort of goes without saying is having zero tolerance for bullying. It sounds simple, you know, address it immediately. But if you have, if the person on your team that is a really strong performer is the bully, it can be really difficult to sort of work up the uh, motivation to talk to that person. But you can't dance around that person. You have to make sure that uh, they're held accountable. And this is really hard. And particularly for vet med, where that person might be your highest billing veterinarian. You know, do you have any comments about that? So interesting you brought that up. So a couple of months ago, they had that uh, Netflix had the documentary on Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. and his, his career. It was fascinating. So it brought back great memories, but it really highlighted what a miserable, bullying a-hole he was to his teammates. Right. And, but then look, people were, then you saw these blogs like, oh, what leadership, what leadership yeah. models did you get? I'm like, okay. Michael Jordan's playing for multi-million dollars and he, the people that he are with, their all goal is to win a trophy. Yeah. And when you have the greatest of all time bullying you, it's a different context than a work environment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're, you know, you don't have a three-year career and you're just going to give everything you have for three years and hopefully you're going to win something and make multi-million dollars. You know, this is lifetime careers. You know, people want to progress in so that attitude is is not tolerated anywhere. And, you know, who knows if, if they would have been as good without his bullying. But I, I just I just looked at that and I was like, just do not equate what he does on, on the sports floor compared to what goes on in the work environment. This stuff never is available. That just can't happen. No. Uh, and I think the third point, uh, again, again, can't really emphasize this enough is having that culture of appreciation. So celebrating achievements, celebrating wins, uh, you know, in group settings and publicly pulling out what people, uh, focusing on people's strengths and saying, you know, X person did a really excellent job today. They're so fabulously organized and making sure that you're not just pointing out mistakes. Uh, and that you're because if you model that, then that's what your team members are going to do. They're just going to be looking for the negatives and the deficiencies, and uh, it's just not a healthy team environment. And that's not a place where trust grows. That's for sure. 
Yeah, I learned that the really hard way, but in a good way. Several years ago, when we did our first employee engagement survey, mm. and the comments that came out were that just like they are quick to identify faults, but never acknowledge all the great things that you do. And I think that was just like the biggest slap in the face in a good way. Yeah. To realize like, yeah, you know, you're right. Because I, I remember being in work environments. And I think that's what happens is we model what we have seen before. Mm. And I, you know, I thought, well, you know, why do we think people are just doing their job? And, you know, when I reflected on it, I'm like, it doesn't matter. We all like to be acknowledged for things that we contribute. And we are really working. And, I, you know, I think we're getting there. Um, we could always be better. But I think we really have develop this culture of appreciation and, and acknowledgement of each other. It just makes things so much nicer. Well, and then you're not just sort of cowering, waiting to be come down on because you've made a mistake or, you know, because you're not as strong in a certain skill as somebody else. Yeah. And then you're, you're giving them conflicting messages. Hey, it's okay to make mistakes, <laughs> but I'm going to point out every one of the mistakes that you make. Exactly. Well, and really, I mean, if, if it's a multiple mistakes, again, it goes back to it's my responsibility as a manager for not setting you up for success and not making sure you had all the tools and expectations and training you needed. So it's a shared culpability when mistakes are made. If it's the same mistake over and over, that's a different thing. That's like a motivation issue. But you always have to look at your participation in the situation. Absolutely. That can be hard. Absolutely. For sure. Okay. So the last uh, and maybe the most tough uh, point in the trust and principles that they talk about is um, how much do I trust the team's underlying intentions and motivations? Uh, and this is really, this is a thorny issue because this is really quite subjective. You know, it's, it's based on our assessment of their, of their motivations and why they do things that they do. Uh, it can be really difficult to sort of without having a conversation, uh, you know what assumptions do. And we all know how bad and how damaging assumptions can be when you've made up this whole story about somebody and why they do the things they do. And, they, and then you, you shut yourself off to other possibilities and you really do that person a disservice. So, you know, the fixes they talk about are breaking down silos. So understanding, you know, if you have that person who doesn't want to share or that person who you don't necessarily think is, is doing things for the right reasons, breaking down silos and making sure people understand the bigger picture. So it's not just about them and about their motivation and what they want. Uh, it's making sure everybody knows how their work contributes to the bigger picture so that they don't sort of get in a little corner by themselves where they don't share. And then this is a huge one. And, and you recently wrote a blog about this, but uh, again, people may not be the problem. It might be your compensation system, you know, mm -hmm. having individual rewards versus team rewards. And I mean, in veterinary medicine, this is to me is like, numero uno as far as a compensation pickle conundrum for veterinarians do you want to talk about that a little bit yeah so accompanying this um, uh, last week i wrote a blog just about compensation and how we compensate veterinarians in north america this is mainly a north american issue is we pay vets on either some compensation based on production a percentage of how much they bill and really what I notice in those practices is that it becomes very much of individual units within a, a group practice, but nobody really wants to take the extra efforts to do what's good for the practice because that may take time away from billing opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I, I really think it sends a conflicting message. Uh, I was actually surprised uh, by posting a blog on LinkedIn of how many people supported my point of view uh, and one person had a great comment was that 
their theory was, and, and this person's been around as a vet practice owner for a long time, is that as veterinarians and as practice owners, we're not really trained to be good managers. And so, you know, we don't really didn't have the skills to build morale and culture and hire and select the right people. And so, all right, let's just do a mechanical kind of lever to get the best out of vets. And so, okay, you do X, we'll pay you Y. Um, and so really, you know, it just sort of became an easy way to manage the vets. Uh, I'll direct people to the blog for it because I, I, I think it's one of the most poisonous things I've seen in a lot of practices that when it's focused on production and, and commission, yeah, you don't get that teamwork and they get very, very territorial. So. Definitely. Yeah. And it's, you know, it could be some people might say, well, it, it disincentivizes the vets to to perform. But really, I mean, if you're having conversations with them about their performance and about production and stuff like that, and there's so many systems that you can design that take into account. OK, if you have somebody who wants to go the extra mile by billing more, we'll take that into account. If we want somebody who wants to go the extra mile by mentoring young vets that, you know, that's valuable to practice too. And we'll create compensation model that takes that into account. So, but it can be hard because there are a lot of veterinarians who are just billing, 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 yeah. uh, you know, and I don't care about anything else. So uh, it can be difficult, but it's definitely a great blog and, you know, plug in. Give me what you're talking about trust. I'm just thinking as you're talking about that, what better way to demonstrate you don't trust somebody is by saying the only way you're going to do what's right, in my point of view, I'm going to make sure I'm going to pay you on production as opposed to, I trust you to do what's best for the client in the end. Do that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great point. That's trust. Yes. Sort of like the mentality as well. If I don't pay you by commission, you're just going to slack off and not work hard. So I need to incentivize you to work hard because otherwise you won't. That's not trust. No. Well, and if that goes back to having a conversation, like you should be having a conversation with those people and making sure they understand what the expectations are. I mean, and their, their colleagues who are pulling their weight are going to uh, find that person and point that person out pretty quickly if they're slacking or if they're not as motivated. I can guarantee you that that's in our practice. They're not, they're paid on salary. None of them are slackers and they just, they want to do the best and they love their patients and their clients and, you know, sometimes I have to hold them back because they go too hard. Yeah. And it's not yeah. because of, of they're wanting to make more money. It's just they're into it. Yeah. Uh, and then again, this kind of the last point they talk about is, is that we need to be willing to have a direct conversation. So, you know, if somebody's self-absorbed and just thinking about themselves and their own sort of hangups and their own ways they want to do things, we need to make sure that they understand how it's affecting the other people on the team. And how really they're hurting other people, but also in the long run, they're, hurt, they're hurting themselves and they're branding themselves as somebody who isn't a good team player. Yeah. And that can affect long-term prospects or inclusion in projects uh, that they might enjoy, all of those types of things. So as leaders or as, as uh, small L leaders who aren't necessarily you know, uh, a manager or an owner of a practice, they're still leaders but they need to be able to collaborate uh, with multiple people. They can't just sort of sit in the corner and do their own thing. Yep. Great. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's the trust article and it's really interesting. I took like very extensive notes. Yeah. I, I thought both articles were fascinating. And as I said, you know, I read a lot, but when I read something like this, it makes me stop and re examine myself, my actions, what I've done, what I think of what I'm doing. Uh, love these articles. So we have links to both of these articles in the podcast notes. 
empower people to think for themselves. Yes, absolutely. Okay, now to our wins and fails for the, the, the week, or these past two weeks. I'll, I'll go first. I'll start with my okay. fails, and I also want to, I want to end on a positive note. You're going on vacation tomorrow, so we've got to end on a positive <laughs> note. Yeah. So my fail are those companies that still think they can get away not treating their, their uh, staff right. In the age of transparency, things come out eventually. And there's just two articles I read this week, and, you know, they're all accusations, and it's all supposed. Um, and But when you hear them over and over and over within these organizations, so what's happened this week, is, it's happened before, and in the past, one organization has been proven. So, so I'm going to go from the two extremes of culture in North America, from Ellen DeGeneres to Fox News. Both of them are just getting slammed for just horrible staff behavior. Some of the stuff that's coming out this week about Fox News is just just horrible. Uh, you just can't imagine that this is going on in this day and age. Um, you know, what's more surprising, and it's just been this uh, recurring um, sense from Ellen, is that in spite of what a great woman she comes across on TV, she treats her staff poorly. So I just think that, you know, as we got to walk the walk, talk the talk like we got to do what we say we're doing so i just think you know um there are people the people who we are are our best resources the, the improvement in our companies are going to come from people we got to take care of them so that's my little soapbox my win uh for this week is so one of my business heroes ones i really listen to read a lot of books i just think he's a very innovative creative thinker danny myers owns a bunch of restaurants in new york city he's one of the owners of shake shack the hamburger chain but he's always been focused on people first and he um he actually was very influential in our own business in terms of having this focus going setting care of the customers first take care of the people first you're not going to get great customer service unless the people absolutely love the company they're working for and so about two years ago, he was really concerned about the inequality between what restaurant staff makes. So server, waitress goes out there later, they make the bulk of the money from tips. Whereas the chefs, the people in the kitchen don't partake in the tips. And it's, most of them are working minimum wage, but actually had the hardest job. You know, most hours perhaps pretty dangerous back in the kitchen. So he said, we're going to get... We're going to raise our prices 15, 20%, get rid of tips, make sure everybody's paid well. Kind of a European model. Because, you know, just this week, as these restaurants are starting to open up in New York City, he says, we're, we're getting rid of that right now. We're going to waive that because he goes, these, these waiters and servers are coming back. We want to make sure they have an opportunity to make as much money as they can. Clients are coming in. They may want to start tipping generously. Let's make sure you know, everybody's been hit hard. Let's make sure they can make the money. But and what we're also going to do is incorporate a profit-sharing plan so people mm -hmm. that work back a house will make about 15 to 20% more than they are now, too. So I was like, all right, that's, you know, you know, one industry that has just been pummeled by this pandemic is the restaurant industry. And, you know, he's, he's opening up. They're probably huge debt, and they've got to borrow money. But he's giving it back to his people first. So I thought, well done, him. And I mean, I remember working in the restaurant industry as a teenager and how uh, I worked in the back of the house, but it was sort of like a pizza salad making area where clients could see me. And uh, I remember uh, clients would walk, if they didn't like their pizza or their salad, they would walk up and like berate us. 
And uh, I remember thinking, like, I don't get paid enough for this. That's nice. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I would have loved to benefit from that for sure. So uh, my example, the one or the one thing that news item that I'm talking about is sort of like a, a win slash fail. So and unfortunately, it ends on a fail. So I was trying to think of a way to make this a positive. But uh, uh, anyway, here we go. So Amazon.com, our good friend Amazon, where the world mm-hmm. comes to us. Uh, they recently announced that they are letting most corporate employees work from home until January, uh, which is excellent. Uh, you know, they're not having people come back. Uh, you know, there are a lot of Amazon employees in U.S. states where the pandemic is raging and, and is in a resurgence. So, um, so that's wonderful. Originally, they were saying it would be until early October. Now they're saying until January. So that's great news. And then on the flip side, the employees that work at the company's warehouses actually, you know, putting things in boxes and getting them shipped out, they're feeling a little bit left behind. Uh, you know, their $2 an hour wage subsidy that they had has been finished. Um, and they were also allowed to take leave uh, without sort of going through a really complicated process. You know, if they need to take care of somebody who is sick or whatever the case may be, there was sort of a no questions asked, we'll figure it out. But now the company is, is taking that away as well. So they're delayed and confused and, and it's just become difficult for them to sort of to uh, take care of their personal business. So it's, it's sort of a win fail. I think uh, it really underlines how as company, you know, as leaders, we have to make sure that we're taking everybody into account. And I mean, your restaurant example is really not that far off either, you know, uh, we need to, to consider how our decisions affect people and, and make sure we're taking care of everybody, uh, not just the ones that we're paying higher salaries who, or who have more public-facing roles. Right. Well, now I'm going to feel guilty ordering from Amazon later today. Thanks. Well, you're keeping them in business, I guess. I don't know that yeah. you need your help. Yeah. <laughs> so. Anyway, uh, Katie, another great, great conversation. Have a great vacation. We'll be back Thank in you. two weeks. And... Uh, Let's take care of our people. Right on. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. At Oculus Insights, we care a lot about animals, but we also care about the health of the veterinary profession. Our goal is to support veterinary businesses around the world by helping you clear your path to success.